Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose words I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose words I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can a man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanksgiving, thanks offerings for you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This morning we uh, continue in the series that I began last week uh, dealing with fear. And this morning we are going to talk about the fear of man, fearing other people. I must say to you this morning that as we begin this uh, uh, message, I uh, recall being in graduate school in Columbia, South Carolina, attending a fantastic church when God began to do a great work in my heart. It was there that I was studying to work in college administration and had my eyes set, focused on what I thought was my dream for my life when God rearranged things. And as he did, he directed me into the pastorate, into ministry. It was 20-some uh, years ago. Uh, there are very few sermons that you hear and that you remember for 20-some years, but I heard one, not from this text but it had, as we say in preaching, the points that this sermon has. I've remembered those through the years. So I want to give credit where credit is due. The points that are stated today do not belong to me. They belong to Dr. Dick Lincoln, who was pastor at Shandon Church. And wow, how God used that as a single person uh, in my life as I've dealt with uh, the anxiety that many singles deal with which is, who will it be, uh, if it will be anyone? We come to a place in Scripture this morning where David is writing. As Joe has read, David is writing. He has been anointed king of Israel, but he is not yet in position of king. And being anointed king of Israel, David uh, uh, then flees for his life because Saul, who is the sitting king of Israel, is paranoid, is jealous of David. You see, David had this fantastic experience where he had an excursion one day. He left uh, the shepherd fields to go up and take some food to his brothers who were in a standoff with Goliath. And they're in this standoff with Goliath, and the armies of Israel are, talk about being afraid of a person, are intimidated by one guy. 
all the armies of Israel are standing at distance as this one giant, his name Goliath, is there. And David steps up to the scene. He's the newcomer, the new kid on the block. And he sees what's unfolding. He goes to King Saul, tries on Saul's wardrobe. His armor doesn't work well for David. So David goes out there uh, armed with a sling and a few stones. And and, and Goliath taunts him. David puts the stone in the sling, uh, whips that thing up, lodges one in Goliath's head. He falls to the ground. And, uh, and the PR got going really well in Palestine. As a matter of fact, uh, songwriters came out of the woods and they wrote a new number one hit. And the number one hit was this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands and so it made it to the top of the charts quickly everybody was singing the new song uh, everywhere you went it was Saul's thousands and David's ten thousands and when you are the sitting king of Israel that doesn't set well with you and uh, then after that David is anointed to be the new king and when he is uh, All of that mixed together, Saul becomes quite paranoid and seeks David's life. It's fascinating where David runs for for cover. He runs to the land of the Philistines. Now, probably not the smartest move in the world if you're the guy who took down their number one guy, not the place that you want to be, but he runs to Gath. And Gath is this uh, city-state in southern Palestine. That's where the Philistines had settled. Years earlier, they had come. They were called Sea Peoples, and they had come across the Mediterranean Sea, settled right there on the coast, kind of in that hook, and uh, there they lived, and they harassed Israel all the time. David shows up there thinking, I can hide out here from Saul. He's running from one enemy uh, into another enemy's camp. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's a rough place to be, where the place you run to is the place you normally would run from. You feel like there's absolutely no place you can go to get away from the enemy or from the person who scares you. For some of you, it's a boss, and he is unfair. He is uh, mistreating you. You know his ethics aren't right, and you have to work for him because you have to provide, and so you feel stuck. How can you deal with the boss and, and get your job done and provide for your family? That's one of the worst kinds of fears of man because that person uh, has way a, a whole lot of power in your life and can control your livelihood. It's a tough place to be. For others of you, the difficulty is that the person you fear lives in the house with you lives in the house with you. I remember a few years ago, uh, this family came to see me. They did not attend here, never have. Uh, they just needed some counseling and uh, didn't know where to find it, so they end up here in my office. It's a, a mom, a dad, and a big strapping teenage boy. And the parents were terrified of their teenager. His last antic was to grab a five-pound bag of potatoes and hurl them at his mother. 
And so they lived in fear of this teenage boy in their home. How do you get away from that person you fear if he is your husband? How do you run from that person you fear if if she is a bully in school and makes fun of you and taunts you, uh, but you have to go to school still and the person isn't going anywhere? What do you do? David fled to Gath. And he gets to Gath, and when he gets there, he's hoping to hide out. And David, who is hoping to hide out in Gath, is discovered. And when he is discovered uh, in Gath, it isn't a pretty, pretty uh, scene. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. I'll read it to you. Uh, he gets there, and the king of Gath gets word from some informants that David is in town. And here's what they say. It turns out that the number one hit had made it all the way to the Philistines. And they said, is this not the one about whom they sing to one another and dance with? Saul is struck down as thousands, and David is ten thousands. The song has a dance, too. This is quite compelling. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Now David's got two kings to be afraid of. He's got Saul, the king of Israel. He's got uh, uh, the king of Gath, whose name is Achish. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. This is the guy who stepped up to Goliath and was unafraid of him. What does he do in his fear of the king of Gath? Now, now the king of Gath, that's a city-state. This is not like the king of a nation. It's like being afraid of the king of Old Fort, all right? So not much power this person's going to wield. Uh, but uh, David's afraid of the king of Old Fort. And so what does he do? He... Um, pretends to be insane uh, in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spit run down his beard. He'd fit into Old Fort, uh, but uh, let uh, be tobacco spit, but let uh, spit run down his beard. He just acted like a fool. He acted like an idiot. And when he did, um, Achish said to his servants, behold, you, you see the man is mad. Uh, Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? Evidently, um, Gath was a haven for crazy people. And so he said, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Uh, Shall this fellow come into my house? This surely can't be David. And so David escapes that king by pretending to be insane. Fear of people will cause you to do and think things you never, ever thought you would do or think. It will create in you a paranoia, and you will begin to envision scenarios in your mind that never ultimately play themselves out. You will develop an entire profile of a person based on your fearful idea of what they may do, could do, would do, or have done to someone else. And so David escapes there. The very next chapter of 2 Samuel heads off to 
a cave, and most likely from that cave writes Psalm 56. He writes this psalm most likely from that cave. And it is from Psalm 56 that we learn these three strategies for dealing with people who scare you. Number one, face problems honestly. Face problems honestly. Check it out. David says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. Tramples on me. Let's look at all the words David uses to describe his problems. Man tramples on me. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. Many attack me proudly. Verse 5, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil against me for e- are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. David is in serious trouble. The king who has armies at his disposal. The king of Israel is after him. The king and his armies, David, and one is alone. This is the the struggle of his life. He is running from a king and all his armies. And now he ends up in Gath, and he is discovered there, and he's killed their number one guy. And so there is nothing good that he can see as far as who's chasing him down. It's bad every way he turns. At some point, you have to face the music and say, this is the real problem. I will say to you, there isn't a problem that you are going to solve, but what this is not the first step. Every single problem you face begins here if you're going to solve it. Everyone. As a matter of fact, by the time we finish today, I hope I will demonstrate to you that the most significant problem in your life you faced by admitting it. The most significant problem in our lives, the only way we got anywhere with it was to admit that we have it. And David does that in this psalm. It's okay to say what your problems are. You've got to be careful who you say that to. Number one, you say that to God. Uh, in our Bible fellowship group this morning, which was so good, Scott Kilgore pointed out that one of the things that we need to do, prayer is this tool by which we say things out loud to God. God can handle, handle that. That's what David is doing in this cave. He's saying, God, look at this. Trample, attack, talk about. All their thoughts are evil against me. They lurk and wait for me. This is my problem. You may have seen the news yesterday. It's difficult news. You may have seen it yesterday, that, that ferry that uh, sank off the shores of... Uh, South Korea, that ferry, all the crew was arrested yesterday. Why? Reports began to come out, and these days with phones and things, things were recorded, and pulled this article that was before yesterday, but the article uh, describes 
this one student saying, we were told to stay where you are, so we just kept staying. At least some of those who jumped or made their way to the top of the ship were rescued, but the captain came over the loudspeakers and said, stay put. And there were students and others eating breakfast underneath uh, in lower levels of that ferry that had they ignored the warning could perhaps have survived. Why the captain and all his crew, all of whom survived, would not admit the problem is puzzling to a lot of people. Uh, The announcement literally said, don't move. If you move, it's dangerous. Don't move. This one girl said that she heeded that until the water was up under her chin, at which point she thought, Should I still not move? That inability to face the problem, some say may have cost hundreds of people their lives. We have to face problems. Honestly, that's what David does. Not only does he face problems, honestly, the second strategy that David, uh, David employs here, we find in verse 4, in God whose word I praise. In God whose word I praise. Believe promises completely. The second strategy is to believe promises fully. What does this mean? In God whose word I praise. That's interesting because we always think of praising God, but praising his word, uh, that phrase means that I praise God's promises. Whose word I praise are his promises. So let me say something immediately. If you're in a position right now where you're afraid of someone, you're living in constant fear of someone, a beginning point for you is to go to the Word of God and begin to extract the promises of God. To begin to extract where God says, I will. For example, when God says, I will never leave you, or forsake you, and if you fear abandonment because you're in a marriage where uh, maybe divorce is right on uh, the horizon, if you don't want to drive the wife crazy you're trying to keep, then hand that over to God with trust in a God who won't leave you should she. Because he has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you. Believe promises fully. I love what David says in verse 9. This I know that what? God is for me. God is for me. In Romans 8.31, Paul answers that by saying this, If God is, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
You see, folks, if God is on your side, you're in good shape. If God is on your side, there is no one more powerful than he. There is no one wealthier than he. There is no one more loving than he is. And if God is on your side, you're good. You're in good shape. I remember as a college student, I grew up, as many of you know, so sheltered. I mean, how sheltered was I? When I went off to college, I'd never been to a movie in my life. I'd never watched television. We didn't have that. I had never listened to any kind of music except Southern Gospel. Sometimes I would uh, sneak and, and listen to 106.9. All right? I'm serious. Uh, so sometimes I would sneak and listen to ungodly Billy Graham stuff. Um, and and uh, I'm being serious about that. I was so sheltered. So you can imagine the enthusiasm when I get to go to basketball games. Had never been to a sporting event in my life. I'd never seen a basketball game. I'd never seen a football game. None of that. And I'm 18 years old. And so I'm at Wofford, and I get to go to a basketball game. Well, something, maybe it was years of pent-up lack of ability. Something overtook me, and I became like a Cameron crazy at Wofford. You know, it didn't matter. We lost everything, but I got excited. And so I formed a group of students, and we thought it was our mission to do some advanced planning before games, meaning that we would get hold of the enemy's roster, the opposing team's roster, and we would take the names of the starters and the others who played, and we would make up new names for them that spun off of anything we could discover about them in our research. So we would sit right behind the visitor's bench, and when they would go in, we would taunt them with names. Our goal was to get them to look at us and acknowledge that we had climbed into their heads. It was so ungodly and so much fun. Um, it was like, you know, there's pleasure in sin for a season, Scripture says, and there was pleasure in that for us. I mean, I can't play anything except the radio and the piano. So I, I can't play sports, but certainly I could help the team out, I thought, by doing this. And so that's what we did. There was a group of us, and one night we did it, and um, we didn't realize in our uh, uh, ecstatic uh, experience of taunting players that their parents were sitting behind us. It never occurred to us to turn around and realize that these players have parents who love them and now hate us. And, uh, and then other people. And so we had done that, we had won the game, and it was a, a come-from-behind win. When I turned to leave, I was alone at this time. I turned to leave, and I was surrounded by people I did not know, but they knew me well. And they said, where do you think you're going? I said, well, back to my dorm room. And they said, uh, well, we want to go with you. I said, in my mind, you don't live there. Um, uh, they said, we'll follow you outside, and we want to finish outside what you started inside. Okay. 
I, I really didn't think we would finish anything. I, I just thought I'd do my part and we'd be done, you know? And, and I have these, and they're about six dads, and they're surrounding me. And I look out of the corner of my eye, and I see football players from Wofford. And I think salvation has arrived. And uh, I look up and they look at me. And when they look at me, they see this look of fear on my face because I'm going to die. And I look at them and they go like that. And I went like that. And here they come, all of them, and they're big guys. And they come down here and they looked at me and they said, Jerry, do we have a problem? I said, not now. (laughs) No, we don't. They said, what is the problem? I said, these guys want to meet me outside. So, you know, I got somewhere to be. Could you meet them outside? (laughs) And they said, oh, yes, we'll meet them outside, Jerry. You just go. And I watched these guys, and they just partied, these parents, and they escorted me out. And I walked out, little punk that I was. As a parent of a college athlete, I'm hating myself now, but at the time, I thought that was pretty cool. And so I walk out, and they took care of business. I don't know how that went down. Never asked. It was all fine and good until a letter came from the president of that university to the president of Wofford saying, there's a student. He had done his research, found out my name, and I ended up in the president's office. So at any rate... Uh, all of that to say, the only way I could, I could in any sense escape that is because there was somebody bigger than who was in the circle who could take care of me. That's David's point. If God is for you, who can be against you? God is bigger than every single person that you're afraid of. He is. God is not intimidated by the employee who is out to get you as a boss. God hasn't lost any sleep over your problem, person. Not any. He's not sitting up in heaven thinking, how am I going to handle this one? No, he isn't. He isn't. That's David's point. If you write in your, in your Bibles, you should go to verse 9 and underline that phrase, God is for me. God is for me. As a matter of fact, we're going to do something this morning, so sit up straight and listen. And I'm just going to say God is for, and I want you to say your name just out loud because you need to do this. This needs to get planted in your mind because some of you are listening to me, but you still don't believe that as his child, he is for you. So here we go. When I get to the me, I'm not going to say me. We're just going to say our names. You ready? God is for? Wow. Wow. He is. He is for you. God is for you. As a matter of fact, verse 32, I shared last week, it says some of you need to take it, memorize it of Romans 8, that if God would give up his only son for you, will he not also much more freely with Jesus give you what? All things. All things. Uh, Leads us to a third strategy. And the third strategy perhaps leads you to a, a view of God that you've never seen. And your third, the third strategy is to trust God completely 
How do we see our need to do that? Verse 8. Verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings or my wanderings. David has gone from Israel to Gath, now to a place called Adullah, to a cave. And God has the perfect GPS tracking system. He never lost sight of his servant David. He never lost track of him. Some of you have unfairly lost your jobs. God knows where you worked. He knows where you are now. And he knows where you will be five years from now. He's not lost sight of you. He's not hunting for you like a needle in a haystack. He has his eye on you. You've put my tears in a bottle. Uh, That is an intimate picture. Why? Think of the people in your life that you've been close enough to to ever even touch a tear that's fallen down their face. And all of your acquaintances gets narrowed down to the people you love the most, doesn't it? Your children, a mom or a dad who's sick, a husband or a wife, and that's about it. So David says, figuratively speaking, there's a bottle, and on that bottle it says, Nicole, and there is a collection of tears. There is a bottle, and on that bottle it says, Jim, And there is a collection of tears. Uh, There's Richard and uh, there's uh, Judith and there's Paula and Beth. And those tears have not gone unnoticed. Uh, David goes on to give another picture. Are they not in your book? I thought of it this week. Josh and Carrie had their baby girl this week. Uh, She's uh, doing well, and Carrie's doing well. And with babies come baby books. How many of you have ever done a baby book? Raise your your hand up high, so just kind of look around. Yeah, baby books. What are baby books? They're, They're books that mostly mamas do, I think. And they put all of this stuff in them to uh recount um, the birth of the child or stuff leading up to it. So I went online this week, this week and just Googled what goes in a baby's book because I must confess I did nothing in baby, baby's books, all right? Uh, Wendy did the baby's books. I didn't do that. So what goes in baby's books? Here's what Mel said, a mom named Melanie. Pictures, of course, month by month. Month by month growth. List of what people brought you for the baby, a lock of their first haircut. This is gross. Umbilical cord. 
this is weird, but I still have my sons. All right. I mean, is she going to show that to him one day? That's awkward. Um, appointment cards for your OBGYN visits, hospital bracelets, footprints, newspaper articles from DOB, uh, the date of birth, cost of things in a grocery store. Like, son, when you were born, treat me. It was funny. I don't know. All right. Birth announcement, uh, handprints. Do this yourself with them. Then here's what Francis shared. Of course, what day he or she was born. <laughs> Francis begins with the obvious. When you found out you were pregnant, what you thought, what daddy thought, who were the first people you told? Wow. First doctor's appointment, first ultrasound pictures and dates, possible names you're thinking of for both sexes. Write a message from mommy to baby and from daddy to baby. What happened while you were in labor? I don't want to know that. I'm just going on record by saying I don't think kids would want to know that. Um, Every tiny, and tiny is in capital letters, every tiny detail that you go through your whole, in capital letters, pregnancy, what the number one song was, how much gas cost, how much milk cost, who's the president is, how much a stamp cost. He says, these are all things that were in my daughter's baby book, she says in parentheses. When I found out I was pregnant, I started a pregnancy journal about things that were happening in my pregnancy. Francis is legit, all right? I had put everything, and that's in all caps, in her baby book. She saved her umbilical cord, too. All right. No, it's kind of gross, she says. Saved her crib card from the hospital. These little gold duck sticker things they put on her to measure her uh, after she was born. The bandages to her shots. The label from her first baby food. The label from her formula. Hospital bracelets for her. Me and the one her dad got so she could go pe- he could go pick her up from the nursery. All right. I got a wooden chest from the arts and crafts store and burned her name into it and stained it and kept all kinds of stuff from her first year. I just hope the umbilical cord is in formaldehyde. All right, so the banner from the baby shower, the banner from when my friend decorated my house after she was born, deflated balloons, her outfit she came home in, the hat she wore in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. I am a sucker for memories. Duh. All right, so, so what's my point? If God did a baby book, which evidently, Scripture is clear, there's a book. I'm not sure what all is in it. But what David is saying, we kind of go, okay, Francis went over the top. I do something similar to that. What does God put in his book? According to David, God in his book saw the spittle that came down David's beard when he danced around like an insane man in the no-name town of Gath. You will never be able to deal with the powerful person or people in your life until you trust God fully. Does he have lavish, ridiculous love for you? Borderline, read it and go, what, Francis, were you thinking? Does God have the kind of love for you that causes you to say, God, what were you thinking
Yes. He's keeping a book. He's not lost sight of your wonderings. I think that's what Janet's testimony said. God hasn't lost sight of my wonderings. He's been with me through the thick and thin, the depths and the heights of my life. That's what Donna Bingham's testimony said. God hasn't lost sight of my wanderings. When I wandered away from God, he did not pull away from me. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? I said that in order for us to get this, in order for us to do this, we probably have to go back to square one. And the square one is face problems honestly. And here is the reality. If any of you sitting in here know Christ, at some point the only reason you know Christ is because you understood yourself to be a sinner in need of a Savior. You understood yourself to be desperately lost without Christ, apart from him. That's what you understood. And the beginning point for your eternity is to face problems honestly. And the biggest problem you and I have is called sin. It's the biggest problem any of us has. And at some point, if you know Christ, you face that problem honestly. You just said, I am a sinner. And then, following that, at some point, you had to trust God completely. You had to believe promises fully. What do I mean by that? You had to believe that Jesus died for your sins. You had to believe that God sent his only son for your sins. And that led you to take all of your collective eggs and put them in this one basket. And what is that basket? Salvation conversion, a new life in Christ. And you believed that Jesus Christ was enough, that Jesus died for you. If you haven't done that, you don't know Christ. If you haven't faced your problems, if you haven't trusted God's provision of his Savior, if you don't trust God, never trusted him fully with your life, you sit here this morning in charge of your destiny. You sit here this morning and you better worry, you better be afraid because you've got to determine what's happening next. But if at any point in your life you faced your sin problem honestly and you believed God's promises fully, and you trusted God completely, then the God who lavishly loved you by giving his only son for you, Romans 8.32, we go back to again, will he not much more freely with him give you what? Say it loud, what? All things. things. Say it loud, church. Will he not much more freely with him give you? All things. All things. He's got your tears in a bottle. He's got your wanderings in a book. All this week, whatever you've been through, he hasn't taken his eye off you. He hasn't lost sight of you. He he knows your financial need. He knows the person or people who are pressuring you to do something you know you shouldn't do. 
He knows the unfair boss. Say, Jerry, what shall I do? I'm going to give you two things. Number one, two responses. How do you put into practice this trust? If you don't know Christ this morning, oh, you simply need to trust him today as your Savior. You need to say, okay, God, I've never, I've never trusted you as my Savior. Today, I give my life to you. You need to do that today. And trust Christ with your eternal life. Number two, very practical. It's something I'm doing right now in my own walk with the Lord, and God is rocking my world. Began about three weeks ago, just working through the Psalms, and everywhere it gives a name for God or it says God is. Like yesterday was, oh God, my strength. What I do is in my journal, I just simply write, God, you are my strength strength. And then I'll write about a paragraph, maybe that much, on God, how I need him to be my strength, how I've seen him be my strength. I do it every day. For the last three weeks, God has been so near, so real, so present. And, and I have realized that though I pastor you and prepare sermons, I've been way too ignorant of him. I just didn't know he was all that. And he is. And more. And now, honestly, every day when I grab my Bible, I think, God, who, who am I going to see that you are today? And I can't wait. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God who does great things. Our tears are in a bottle, our wanderings in a book. Whom should we fear with you on our side? So I come to you today and I pray now as a pastor for this flock that you privilege me to lead. I pray, Father, that their fear would be replaced by faith in your promises and in your heart. I pray that they would uh, begin maybe this afternoon or tomorrow morning early to go to your word and discover you as their strength, salvation, joy, hope, God most high. 
God Almighty. The Lord who provides. The Lord who goes before us. The Lord who is the banner that flies high in the battle. The Lord our peace. The God who is there before we arrive. And then I pray for lost people in this room who are navigating on their own who are trying to get where they're going without the divine gracious navigator. May they turn from their sin, trust Christ as their Savior, and be forgiven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.